Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 10, and we'll look again where Paul read in verses 17 to 22. I will entitle the morning's message, Seek Ye First, and that will become apparent as the Bible study unfolds. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt down before him and, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. And then Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away grieved, for he had great possessions. As we make our way through Mark, it's interesting, we were trying to decide if we wanted to watch something last night. And um, um, we stumbled across on, on TV the Gospel of Mark. And it was simply read. They just read the whole Gospel of Mark, and they had characters playing the part. And I said, well, this is a good warm-up. <laughs> so we sat there, and, and uh, um, I didn't like the Jesus that they picked. You know, He uh, just didn't have the eyes that I expect the Lord to have. But nonetheless, it was, it was spot on because they were simply reading what we're reading this morning. Uh, they had this character here, the rich young ruler, and just as we read it here, it was read for us. Let me talk a little bit about this guy. First of all, I believe this guy was sincere um, with the Lord, with what he said to him. I believe he meant what he said we would call this guy today just a nice guy. And um, the Lord, simply, if you look at verse 21, when he said about the commandments and everything, and the Lord knows he's just not getting it, I was struck by the fact that the Lord said he loved him. And the reason I think the Lord said that he loved him is because I believe this man was sincere in... Um, keeping those things which the Lord told him to keep. So I look at this, this man, this rich, young ruler. So he's rich, he's young, and he has authority. Uh, that can be a, a deadly combination for some. But I believe he's very sincere. So the question is, how does the Lord get this guy's attention about good works getting him to heaven? Um, I believe that he was keeping every one of these commandments. Uh, At least I believe he was keeping them outwardly. Having said that, just turn to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. And remember, the Lord is trying to get his attention because outwardly I believe he actually fulfilled all these things. And I think that's the reason Jesus looked on this man and loved him. Uh, but he had to get his attention somehow. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses oh, 21 
Um, we read, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This guy's question was, how do I get to heaven? What, what good work do I do? Well, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Outwardly, he had never killed anybody. But when it got to the heart of the matter, inwardly, everybody has become angry with somebody. So, guilty on that account. If you get down to verse 27, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, outwardly, I don't believe this guy did. But in verse 27, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery uh, with her in his heart. So this man wasn't around, I believe, to hear this teaching. Otherwise, he would have never said, I've kept all these from my youth. So now the Lord tells him, if you go back to Mark, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. But he still has, does not have this guy's attention. Um, we're going to read in Romans a little bit later that the playing field is level with every human being. Either you're a forgiven sinner or you're an unforgiven sinner. Good place for an amen including the rich young ruler. And Romans 3.23, if you're taking notes, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I love that song, Justified. Just as though I've never sinned. And then he who knew no sin became sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. Now that's a chorus. (laughs) That'll, That'll sing and that'll preach. And the great exchange... You know, this is the same question that the disciples asked the Lord in John chapter six as they were following the Lord. Again, if you're taking notes, I'm quoting John six, verses 28 and 29. Then they said to him, what shall we do, Lord, that we might work the works of God? So many people uh, are under the impression that there's something you do. A lot of people, they ask them, are you going to heaven? Are you saved? And they, they sort of think God judges on some sort of a curve that my good deeds are going to outweigh my bad deeds. And that's a view that really a majority of people uh, think about the gospel rather than we're all the same. So they ask the question, Lord, what shall, what do we do? What kind of work do you want? And um, Jesus said and answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Well, indirectly, he's saying it to the rich young ruler. If you look carefully, he says, look, there's nobody who is good. No exceptions, except one. And he says, that's God. I would have finished the sentence, and you're looking at him. (laughs) He didn't. Instead, he wants to get through to this man, but how does he get through to him? How does he let this guy know that, um, um, that he's not good? Well, he goes for the zinger. God knows this man's heart. He knows every man's heart. And he knows what's number one in this man's life. 
So to show that he hasn't been as good as he thought he was, um, he goes to that one point that would get this man's attention. This morning, let's look at two different aspects of the rich young ruler. Number one, the danger of riches. And number two, the difference between called into the ministry and missions versus staying where you are as a born-again believer who's saved. And I want to look at the contrast. There is a difference between the two. The first one this morning, the danger of riches, if we just continue on to read in verse 23 of Mark 10, then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, well, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. He says it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this was astonishing. The word astonishment is used in verse 26. They had attributed financial success with God's blessing. And there is a place for that, but we're gonna discuss the balance this morning. But in their mind's eye, it says they were astonished, notice, beyond measure, saying among themselves, well, who then can be saved? But looking at them, Jesus said, with men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Now, Peter here was called. Part of the movie we watched last night actually showed Peter and Andrew being called and then James and John. The Lord specifically went directly to these men and he says, you follow me. And then he goes to Levi and finds the tax collector. Levi, you follow me. And what tells us they left what they were doing and they immediately followed after them. Uh, This morning we're gonna look at other people who wanted to follow the Lord but the Lord would not let them. So there's gonna be a contrast between the two. Peter says here in verse 28, Lord, uh, we've, left, we've left it all for you. Uh, and Jesus said, yeah, you have, Peter. And I say unto you that there's no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake is, uh, and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brethren and, and uh, sisters and mothers and children and lands Notice, with persecution, all of the disciples, except for John, were martyred. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So we're making a distinction here. And the point I'd like to make is the Lord looked at this man with love. And in his mind, he wanted to do the right thing. And um, the Lord said, well, you know, if, you're, if you really want to go for it and be perfect, and what he meant by that, by being a disciple, then you're going to have to be like the other disciples. They left it all, and they followed me. Um, Matthew 6, verse 24, with this man, the heart of the issue was that he was wealthy, And he was now counting the cost because the Lord had doubled down on following him and what it would cost this man. 
it would cost him his possessions. And he couldn't do it. And so what has always intrigued me about this as he's walking away, the Lord didn't say, hey, hold it, wait a, wait a minute, we can talk this thing through. And we'll work out something here. No. He made his choice and he let him go his way. He left grieved because he had great possessions. Matthew 6, 24 says, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. I want to look at probably the sayings of probably the richest man who ever lived. He brought in 666 talents of gold a year. Can you imagine what that would be like in today's market? Turn back to Ecclesiastes, who was written by King Solomon. He wrote it for his son about life. Ecclesiastes is probably one of the greatest books. He he wrote it for his son to warn him about life and what to invest in. And if I would summarize chapter two, I'll read portions of it that deal with money. He basically had it all. He had the means to try it all. He tried building projects. Um, He planted vineyards in verse five and six, orchards, pools. He had, in seven, he had acquired male and female servants. I had greater possessions of herds than anyone ever lived in Jerusalem. Then in verse eight, I also gathered for myself silver and gold, special treasures of kings and of the province. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, musical instruments of all kinds. I became great and I excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem also, my wisdom remained with me. Now, this is important. He's, he's on a fact-finding mission here. What brings satisfaction in life? What brings contentment? And he's going through the list, and he says, I've tried it all. Been there. We'd say today, been there, done that. Including the uh, search for um, wealth and gold and money. He goes on to say in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep it from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced at all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. And then I looked at all that the works of my hands had done, and the labor which I had toiled in, and indeed, it was all vanity. Grasping at the wind, and there's no profit under the sun. He had done it all. He had tried it all. And to sum it up, he says it's like going like this. Ever tried to grab the wind? You can't do it. And he's saying in his pursuit of, in this case we're talking about wealth. There was nobody wealthier than Solomon in his day. And he says it's an exercise in futility. It'll, it'll leave you thirsting for more and you're gonna come up empty. And thus, we have the book of Ecclesiastes. Of course, you can't read it all, but I wanna read the last two verses because after doing it all and trying it all, and he had the means to do so, he has a conclusion that he comes to. And so in chapter 12, 
Verse 13, he says, okay, now that I've tried it all, here's the wisest man who ever lived. He says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. I would have put a therefore right before that. Therefore, after done it all, doing it all, tried it all, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. His conclusion, the best thing to do is it's not going to make you happy. Well, that's proven with the rich young ruler, isn't it? When he could not give up those things that Solomon had more than he'd ever dream of having, it says that he left and he was grieved because he had great possessions. Turn over to Psalm 49 written by the sons of Korah. Just want to read verses six through nine as it pertains to the futility of worldly pursuits. Pick it up in verse six. It says, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever. They should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. And so commenting about, about wealth, that, um, you know, what does it profit? We're reading from Matthew 16. What does it profit? What does it profit a man if you do become the richest man in the world? He gains the whole world, but then he loses his own soul. And what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Can you buy your way into heaven? Can you uh, have so much and and profit? And yet, this of course reminds me of uh, the parable that Jesus told of the man who was very wealthy. He had so much stuff he had to build bigger barns. So he built bigger barns because <laughs> he had, I like the word stuff. Isn't the word, describing, describing stuff. And that pretty much covers the gamut. I'm sure I have too much stuff. But this guy that had the bigger barns, he had so much stuff, he needed more barns for his stuff. So he built them. But he wasn't counting on, as the Lord says, thou fool. Because tonight, your soul is required of you. And then whose will all that stuff go to? You know, Solomon said the same thing. He said it's better to be wise than a fool. Then he thought about it. He said, no, wait a second. Even though it's better to be wise than be a fool, I've noticed that they both come to the same end. They both die. So then I was frustrated and I hated life. It says with much wisdom comes much sorrow. I believe Solomon was a sorrowful man. He thought everything through to the umpth degree. And the final conclusion was, it's nothing better to do than make sure that you're ready to go because not, nobody here, including me, has any guarantees for tomorrow. Good place for an amen. Absolutely no guarantees. You never know when the Lord is saying, tonight, your soul is gonna be required of you. Actually, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6 to warn those who are wealthy. Um, 1 
Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Why should we warn them about wealth? Why? Because it is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Why, why do we warn the wealthy? Because there's this danger of loving, and we read earlier, you can't have it both ways. You can't love God and money at the same time. You'll love the one and you'll shy away from the other. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Here is the parable of the sower that we're all familiar with. But I want to look at it through a little different aspect this morning. In that I only want to look at one of one of uh, everybody here, I hope, if you haven't read all the sower of the seed, um, I'm going to abbreviate it this morning. Basically, the Lord always spoke in parables. And he likened this parable as a sower going out to sow a seed and it falls on four different types of ground. Hard ground, stony ground, thorny ground, and good ground. We read later that the seed is actually the book that you're holding in your lap this morning. And the sower is the one who's just scattering it out. I could sort of be a sower this morning, we're just teaching the Bible. And basically the Lord's saying it's gonna land on four different kinds of hearts. Now we know that because he gives the interpretation of this parable, and I'm interested in the third one, and um, that would be verse seven, where the seed that fell among the thorns. Now just imagine planting your garden in the springtime, and you don't weed it out first. You got a lot of weeds, but you you put your, your tomato plants in there anyway. It says in verse seven, some fell among thorns and the thorns sprang up and choked them. Okay, no fruit because it got choked off. Well, the Lord is gonna interpret that now because the disciples came and said, Lord, what in the world are you talking about with this seed and the different kinds of ground? If you look at uh, verse 22, He says, now, those who receive the seed among the thorns, it is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Well, what's he saying? I believe this probably applies to American Christianity more than anywhere else on the planet because we're a prosperous nation. Everywhere I'm going these days, everybody's looking to hire somebody. And um, that, that's across the board. Everybody's got a, um, we'll hire you right now, uh, sign out there. And here, the Lord is actually warning, saying that um, you can hear the word and take it in and actually walk out the doors and get caught up. And uh, it brings forth no fruit because the cares and the riches of this life actually choke it off. And I I think it's a very appropriate and appliable um, part 
of this study this morning. Now, having said that, there's absolutely nothing wrong uh, with money. Another good place for an amen. Money's what I like to call amoral. What does that mean? It means you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. Um, Psalm 62 says, if riches increase, simply don't set your heart on them. Just don't let them, uh, Paul said it best, it's, it's ministry money, not money ministry. It's a necessity. And um, like we said earlier, uh, what the Lord has given us, we're simply stewards of. That, by the way, includes your kids, mom and dad. You're simply stewards for a season. They're gonna be under your covering. And you're stewards to bring them up in the ways of the Lord while you have them. The Lord actually gave quite a teaching on materialism, let's call it consumerism. And to find that one, let's turn to Matthew chapter six, one of the greatest teachings the Lord ever um, gave is Matthew chapter six, picking it up in verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves can break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves break in and steal. And I love this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Show me where a a man puts his pocketbook and what he, he invests in, and I'll show you where his heart's at. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And we already quoted this, but here it is again. You can't serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or mammon. And I love this next part. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life. What you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what about your body, and what am I going to put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? He said, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not more valuable than they? If he's going to take care of uh, his creatures, the animal kingdom, how much more you? And then I like the rationale. He says, you can worry about it if you want to. Which of you by worrying can add one cubic to your statue? Another way of saying it, it's not going to change a thing if you worry. So you can go to bed worried and wake up worried, but guess what? It doesn't change a thing. How much better to trust the Lord that he's gonna provide and have a good night's sleep without worrying about it. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they sow, they neither toil nor spin. And now he quotes Solomon, which I find interesting. And whenever the Lord talks about Solomon, it's not necessarily a compliment. And it isn't here either. He says, and yet I say that even Solomon, in all of his glory, And all that he had was not arrayed like one of these. Like one of what? A lily. 
and how beautiful a rose is. Um, not com- Solomon's glory wasn't com- doesn't come close to a tiger lily or any of God's creation. Now, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is sown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, and here comes the therefore, everything that he just said, don't worry. What shall we eat, what shall we drink, and what shall we wear? For after these things, the Gentiles, we would say non-believers, this is what they seek after. The non-believing world is consumed with consumerism. Good place for an amen. Our country is consumed with consumerism and buying and selling and what we're going to eat and what we're going to wear and what we're going to put on. He said, no, no, no. Non-believers do that kind of stuff. But don't let my church be called that. I'm taking care of them. What I want them to do is seek first the kingdom. And here's the title of the message this morning. Um, Your heavenly father knows that you have need of these things. But seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Well, then what happens? And then all these things will be added unto you. You mean the Lord's gonna take care of me if I seek him first and I don't have to worry about it? Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Dwight's translation. You got enough on your plate today without worrying about tomorrow morning. I want a good amen on that one. You got enough going on in your life today with having to think about what you're gonna worry about tomorrow. This is some of the, the, the wisest counsel in the entire scripture because so many people worry about so many things when it clearly goes against, if we put the Lord first, it's all gonna be taken care of anyway. He will take care of you. Maybe not um, your wants, but cert- maybe not uh, your wants, but certainly your needs, whatever they are, he will provide. When it comes to giving, um, and we took what we, uh, it's interesting that this study comes up on a, a morning that we very seldom talk about money here at Calvary. But turn to Luke 21. Let me show you how God measures giving. Luke 21, verse 4 verses. When it comes to giving of our resources, in the first four verses here, the Lord is watching people coming into the temple in Jerusalem and they're putting money um, into, into the treasury. So verse one, then he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. And he says, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all of these out of the abundance have put in offerings for God, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all the livelihood that she had. This is telling us that God measures um, our giving by how much it actually costs you, sacrificially speaking. In other words, to a millionaire, who was walking through and he throws $1,000 
uh, into the plate. It's really nothing to a millionaire, not $1,000. But this widow uh, gave her two mites. I wanted to know the pay scale of what a mite was. And so we went online and found out six minutes of working during this time, you would get paid just for six minutes, <laughs> one mite. She had two. So we're talking 12 minutes of day's wages, but that's all she had. And the Lord here is saying, by the way, it's the least of all the Roman coins, that uh, because that's all she had, she was giving more than the one who would, would have put in a large sum. When it comes to giving according to the Old Testament, it says all, I'm quoting 2 Kings 12, 4, and all the money that a man purposes in his heart to bring into the house of the Lord. In the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, when it comes to giving, it says, so let each one gives as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, uh, no arm twisting, uh, no um, oh, prosperity teachers drive me crazy, saying, if you sow your seed faith here, and it'll come back to you 100-fold. You know, that's called manipulation. <laughs> and, that, and people see right through that. So what does the Lord say? No, 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 none of that stuff. That's between you and the Lord, what you give, and you purpose it in your own heart, and if you're gonna do it grudgingly, then don't give it at all. Um, for, or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The word there is actually hilarious. That you can do it in such a way that you actually want to and not, not grudgingly. This is not in my notes, it's just an old Chuck story that just popped in my head. And this when they were just getting started, and some guy came up and um, you know, I want to write Calvary Chapel a check for a million dollars. And what the guy wanted along with it was the recognition from the community. You ever see those programs where they show the great big check that's this tall and this, this wide and somebody, and they're giving this much to this organization and they took their picture? That's what the guy was looking for. And Chuck looks at the guy and says, you know what, we really don't need it. But you know, right now, World Vision could really use a million dollars. Why don't you go and give it to World Vision? Now, I don't know if I could have said that or not. <laughs> uh, tongue in cheek. I, like I said, it's not in my notes, but it's a true story that really happened. And that was early on in the ministry. We're shifting gears and going to the second part of our message this morning. And that is the difference between being called to ministry and leaving it all behind versus what happens to the average Christian when he becomes a born-again believer? Let's go back to Mark. Uh, 10, the rich young ruler. He wanted to know what's it gonna take. And so the Lord went to the very thing that he was unable to give up, and that was his love of money and his possessions. But he calls him. He says, Pick up your cross and follow me. Now, Jesus doesn't say that to everybody. When you become a Christian, um, the Great Commission is for all of us. 
we're all to be an influence in our sphere of um, uh, influence of where we are at our job, our home, our friends. But Jesus was calling this man to follow him. This was the rich young ruler. Well, this brings up the question, does the Lord want me to give it all up in order to be his? And the answer to that is yes and no. Some of you are thinking, Dwight, make up your mind. <laughs> Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'll show you what I mean. It's important to have what the Bible says about this particular issue. I'll tell you why. Some people are actually afraid to come to Christ. If I become a Christian, I know for sure I'm on the first boat to Africa. That's what the Lord's going to do. I don't want to go to Africa. So, 1 Corinthians 7, picking it up in verse 17, Paul addresses this issue about when you're called. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Verse 26 is important. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while being a slave? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, that's good. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. And likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. What I want you to underline is verse 24. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that calling in which he was called. What does that mean? What were you doing when you got saved? Well, then keep doing that. Um, it might mean um, that now you're a godly woman or a godly man, and you can raise your children differently. It doesn't mean that when, when you call, what this is telling me here, that unless the Lord specifically says, you, come and follow me. Um, the other side of this coin is what we just read here. And unless the Lord specifically calls you, then stay right where you are, doing exactly where you are, and let the Lord use you in your circumference, in your uh, group of people that maybe you're the only witness they'll ever see. And so God wants to keep you there. Now, some today are in the ministry and they aren't really called. They have an ambition. And unfortunately, it's not a good ambition. It's more of a self-recognition or they feel better about themselves. And it's not really a calling. That's why in Second Peter it says, Brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. So I've talked to many men over the years that said they feel called or not called. I just have one thing that I throw out to them. And I say the only thing that matters is to make your calling and election sure. 
Are you sure that the Lord is calling you? And I said, here's why. Because in ministry, it's the greatest blessings. But also in ministry, it's the greatest trials. Now, if you're called, and you go out and you go through your first fiery trial, and you're not sure that you were called by the Lord, you're gonna second guess yourself. And you're gonna think about, well, maybe I shouldn't be here. But if you're absolutely sure that the Lord has called you into this place or into that ministry, it doesn't really matter. Because everybody goes through trials and everybody goes through fiery storms. Good place for an amen. Okay, so now you're sure. So now you go through the fiery trial. Well, can't go anywhere because the Lord called me. So I'm just gonna go through the fiery trial and and just keep pressing on. Make your calling and election sure. There are people, turn to Mark chapter five, who ask the Lord, Lord, I wanna follow you. In Mark chapter five, verse 18, this is when Jesus went over to the, the land of the Gadarenes. We watch this, the man of the tombs. Supernatural strength, the demons incited him. When he was chained, he could break his shackles. Um, nobody could tame him, verse four. Day and night, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. But then, verse six, Jesus, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. And we're told here that the Lord commanded the unclean spirit to come out. He says, what's your name? He said, Legion, because we are many. And you know the story, the Lord cast out these demons for this man who has been tormented all these years, and now he's set free, and he's sitting and clothed. In verse 15, um, the whole city country came out to see what had just happened, verse 14. And they came to Jesus and, and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion, he was sitting, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. He was a normal man again. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them what had happened to him, how he had been demon-possessed and about the swine, and they began to plead with him to depart from the region. They were just afraid because they were afraid of this man. Now what happened to him? Well, here's this man's desire. When he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. Now, here is an example of somebody who wants to. He doesn't have anything anyway. He has nothing to lose. He wants to be a follower of Jesus. And the Lord says, no. He said to him, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, I want you to go to your home. And I want them I want you to tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. What's your point, Dwight? Well, you might have a strong ambition. The Lord has done so much for you. Lord, I want to just give it all up and follow you. Well, maybe that's not what he has for you. What's important in all of this is the Lord sent him home and told him to witness to his family members. As we begin to wind this up this morning, here's the important thing about the rich young ruler. It's really a question of the important thing is, are you willing to do whatever? 
Are you willing to say, if the Lord says, follow me? Is your heart in a place that it says, whatever, Lord, what's your will? If you want me to, then I will. If it's involved with missions or whatever, or ministry, the important thing is that you simply have that attitude of saying, thy will be done. Um, And be prepared, even if you want to, when the Lord says, no, I want you to stay right where you are. I want you to continue to be a light in your own family. Love on them. Let them see who you were and what you've become. You're a different person. Everybody knows you and fears you, but now you're completely changed and you're of a sound mind. Go go back home and let your family see you that way. If you don't have that attitude, this is what's going to happen. You're going to leave sad, like the rich young ruler, because you can't count the cost. He may be calling you, but how do you know? Unless you put all the cards down. Say, Lord, my life is yours. I'll do this if you want me to. I'll do that if you want me to. Not my will be done, but yours. The important thing is not that you're called to be a missionary. The important thing is you're doing God's will for your life. Good place for an amen. Let me finish up this morning with two quotes. Two of my favorite quotes. Um... I have this hanging in my office. It's so true. Only one life will soon be passed. And you know the rest of it. Only what's done for Christ will last. The other one comes from Jim Elliott. We just had T.A. McMahon here for our men's stake and study. It was great. And I was reminiscing with T.A. and I had Joshua with me. And I said, T.A., Tell Joshua the story about Jim Elliott and Dave Hunt. Now, most of you here are familiar with Jim Jim Elliott. If you're not, I'm gonna tell you the story. But the night before Jim Elliott left for Ecuador, he was with Dave Hunt. And um, I wanted wanted Joshua to hear the story because um, Jim, Jim Elliott has been with the Lord for quite a while. But let me give you his quote that I think is one of the wisest quotes any man that I've ever heard outside of Solomon. And then I'll tell you the story. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He was an all-American athlete and he gave it all up. Could have been an all-American in sports. And he says, but he gave it up He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Here's his story. On Tuesday, July 3rd, 1956, Jim Elliott and four other missionaries landed on a small strip of land in the jungles of Ecuador. It was a dangerous landing, and they could not all land at once. Four years they had been dreaming and planning for this moment. Their hearts were set on reaching the Achaia Indians with the good news of Jesus. The Achaeans were a notoriously dangerous tribe. No one had reached them before. Some had exchanged gifts, but always the Achaea attacked them. For three months, the missionaries had been regularly flying over the area, dropping gifts and shouting greetings. When they landed, they built a hut, and they waited for the Achaeans to come and find them. They knew the dangers. Their wives had discussed the possibility of becoming widows. Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, 
says they went simply because they knew they belonged to God, because he was their creator and their redeemer. On Friday, July 6th, three Achaeas, one man and two women, approached them. They exchanged greetings. The missionaries showed them rubber bands and yo-yos and balloons, and the men were taken up in the plane. But on Sunday, July 8th, they were due to radio in at 4.30. There was silence. When no message came, a plane was sent to them as a rescue party. Four of their bodies were recovered, all lanced to death. The fifth was never found. It seems they were ambushed. All five men martyred for the sake of Christ. All were married, and four were fathers. One wife was pregnant. Her three-year-old was heard to tell the new crying baby, never you mind, when we get to heaven, I'll show you which one is your daddy. And then the quote. Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott had seen through the lie of consumerism. And he had seen the emptiness, just like Solomon, of this world that it has to offer. And he realized this far greater value of the new creation that God has promised. Life is short. And um, if we seek first the kingdom, if we don't worry about tomorrow, God has promised God cannot lie. And he said he's going to take care of you, so why worry about it? Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for our studies. We look our way through Mark's gospel and the rich young ruler. Lord, we all have our places that you're prodding. And my prayer in closing this morning is just that whatever, whatever you want, Lord, that we're willing, that we won't put any stuff in front of you. Lord, you know our hearts. You know who's in first place. And you told us if we seek first your kingdom, that you take care of the rest. Thank you for this promise. In Jesus' name.